Can we have a conversation for a minute about this thing called paradox? A paradox is an absurd or self-contradictory statement. And whether we realize it or not, we hear them all the time and we say them all the time. Things like, you know, deep down, he's really shallow. <laughs> or how about this one? You have to spend money to make money. I've never understood that one. Or this gem. Nobody goes to that restaurant. It's too crowded. <laughs> Think about that. Then there's the paradoxical statements we make as parents. For you parents in the room. I was at a pool recently and I heard a young mom tell her kids, you can't go near the water until you learn how to swim. Thinking, how's that going to happen? And I've done it myself as a parent. When my kids were younger, I had five kids, and they'd be rambunctious and loud and just going at it. And I would walk in there, what would I say? Why are you guys being so loud? And they look at me like, gee, Dad, I don't really know why. Or how about this one? When we try to appear smarter than we are with these paradoxical statements like, what happens if you're traveling in a car at the speed of light and you turn your headlights on? Right. Are those deep philosophical paradoxes that people like to throw out, like, can God create a rock too heavy for him to live, move? How many times have you heard that one? And in the Bible, you see things that on the surface looks like contradictory or paradoxical statements. Like in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger. And then you flip to John 6, and Jesus says, no one who will ever come to me will ever be hungry. What's going on here? Well, in Scripture, as you pull the layer back and you read the context, paradoxes can provide a rich and deeper way of looking at truth. And today, we're in the final week of the series, The Fruit of the Spirit, and we've been going through the book of Galatians. And in Galatians 5, we've been camping on these two verses here, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And what's interesting here is woven throughout this series is a paradox. And as I've been sitting through these messages and I hear a great teaching on goodness or patience or kindness, in my mind I think, oh yeah, I got to work harder at being more patient. I got to work more harder at producing kindness. No, that's not what it's saying. If you think back to week one, and Noel hit on it at the very beginning of this message, we don't produce this. This fruit is yielded in our lives as we cultivate and work to create an environment that the Holy Spirit is working in us to produce these things. And as we wrap up this series today, we're looking at this um, aspect called self-control. And I don't think it's a mistake that Paul saves this last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit for last. Because I think there's a linkage with this idea of self-control with these other fruits that we see. You think of gentleness or kindness or patience. And I don't know about you, but if I don't have self-control, it's really hard for me to be patient. It's really hard for me to be gentle. And we have this overarching paradox with the fruit of the Spirit then in, in my brain, we have a paradox within a paradox of self-control. Because here's the crucial aspect about self-control. We need it, it's important, but we can't fully control ourselves by ourselves. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. So if you could join me in prayer, because I really think 
we're going to need God to provide us some insight into this passage. Lord, we thank you that your believers have been given your Holy Spirit and that your spirit is at work in our lives in so many ways. You pour out your grace and your presence in our lives through the work of your spirit. And as we grow in the spirit within us, we see fruit and all of us struggle in this area of self-control. And so not only do we need more fruit, we need more of your spirit active in our lives. Open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So the nice thing about self-control It's pretty straightforward to define. Looked it up myself. It's the ability to control ourselves. You're thinking, wow, Mark, I'm glad I came here to hear that nugget of truth you just dropped on us. But if you peel it back, it's a little deeper. Self-control is the ability to direct our desires, our thoughts, our passions, our attitudes, and our words. And the Bible speaks consistently to this truth that you and I, we all have sinful desires. And if you look in this chapter in Galatians here in chapter 5, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you go up a couple verses earlier, and it talks about this thing called the works of the flesh. It says the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, adultery, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And so what we see here are two different types of desires, disordered and misdirected desires. Now, a disordered desire is when we want a good thing more than we want God. And when that good thing gets elevated higher than God in our life on a consistent basis, it becomes sin because it replaces God as our highest authority in our life. And in this passage, we see disordered desires like idolatry. An idol is just something that we look to that's created for security and worth. Later on, it talks about dissensions or factions. In other words, we huddle with people like us So we get approval from them versus getting our approval from God. Misdirected desires, on the other hand, is when we want something in a way that's contrary to what God intended. And in this passage, we see things like sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. This is sexuality outside of God's boundary for what he intended. Later on, it talks about selfish ambition. Not that ambition is wrong, But when the goal and the driving force of our ambition is ourself, and we get our identity and our sense of worth from what we do rather than God, it becomes sin in our life. And throughout the Bible, we see these warnings about these fleshly desires that are constantly at work within us, and both the need for self-control and the impact in our lives when we lack self-control. Proverbs 25 says this, a person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. Earlier in Proverbs, it says, patience is better than power in controlling one's emotion than capturing a city. And I love this metaphor, this picture that the writer of Proverbs uses. It doesn't use the metaphor of a fence in my backyard. In other words, if the fence breaks down, my house is at risk. No, it's the wall around a city. And when the wall around a city broke down, all the inhabitants of that city, their safety was at risk. One part of the wall breaks down, everybody's at risk. 
And this verse speaks to how the lack of self-control has impact not just on our lives, but on the lives of those around us. And this can be a hot-button issue in our culture, right? When people are like, so what if I give in to my desires? I'm not hurting anybody else. Is that really true? Tell that to a spouse in a marriage that's falling apart because of a porn addiction. Explain that to a 10-year-old who struggles for food because mom and dad gambled away all their money. Or a 22-year-old recent college grad who just lost their job because the owner of the company embezzled all the money and fled the country. Our self-control has impact not only in our lives, but the lives of those around us. And God places high value on self-control. When Paul was writing the letter of Titus to one of his uh, apprentices, Titus, in the second chapter, he's reminding him what to impart, what to teach to the believers in his church. And starting in verse 1, he says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And then he goes into great detail. He says, older men are to be self-controlled. Very first thing he says, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in the faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. Think about all three of those things. What do they reflect? A lack of self-control. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled. Then he goes down and says, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. In other words, he's saying, Titus, old men, old women, young men, young women, they all need to grow in this area called self-control. Not only that is it important in the life of a believer, it's an essential criteria for leadership in the church. A chapter earlier in Titus, Paul writes this, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, he's talking about an elder, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, <clears throat> not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. The book of Timothy is going through the same criteria for leadership. What does he say there? An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled. So if self-controlled is this important, that Paul wanted everybody as a believer to grow in it, and it's a requirement for leadership, how do we go about having it? We have to stare down this paradox regarding self-control, and we have to look at three things. We have to look at the role that we play in self-control, and we do play a role. We also have to see what role does God play through his word, through the work of his Holy Spirit. And lastly, and many times often missed, is the role other people play in us having more and more self-control in our life. So let's start with ourselves. The role we play, we must see ourselves as guardians. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. That, that word there, source, can also mean wellspring. Another translation says, everything flows from the heart. And what's interesting about this Hebrew word for source, when you see it other places in the Old Testament, it's used in a different context. It means the exits of a city or the borders of a territory. 
So when it's talking about a source, you think about the earlier uh, passages in Proverbs. It's the wall around a city with the exits. And there have been countries that have built great walls to protect them. And many times the failure wasn't that the wall collapsed, but the person at the gates led invading forces in, and then that nation fell. That happened with the Great Wall of China many years ago. So our role as guardians, much like a city, we have to guard what we let in, what we let out. So let's look at what we let in. These are the inputs that we all in our daily lives face, things that we let into our minds, our eyes, our hearts, and our life. So what kind of filter do you have on those inputs in your life? What filters do you have in terms of social media, your YouTube channels, the music you listen to, the movies? What do you do with the false narratives we all tell ourselves? We all have what I call this default mode thinking, the way we process and look at the world. And in our brokenness and the backstory of our life, one of the ways we deal with shame and hurt is we tell ourselves certain narratives. And sometimes those narratives are inaccurate. But do we catch that? Do we change those? Or do we let those run amok in our lives? Where do we wander in the dark world called the internet at one o'clock in the morning when we're alone, when we're discouraged? These are the inputs we have to be guardians of in our life. What do we let out? These are the words, our responses to other, our emotions. Do we guard those well? What do we let out when our emotions reach a boiling point in an ideological disagreement with somebody else? How controlled are we then? In some of our relationships, how do we guard ourselves in saying or texting something to somebody we really want to say, but we know that's probably going to hurt that person? As guardians of our hearts, how will we wage the war for our attention? Self-control is being assaulted in the digital age. Consider for a second, just a couple quick statistics. The average person in America checks their phone. I want you to think about this. How many times a day do you think the average person checks their phone in America? You don't need to answer, but just think about it. Too much. Too much. Between 150 and 180 times a day. That means during the average person's waking span of a day, every four or five minutes. The typical attention span is now eight seconds. That of a goldfish. Let that sink in. Every time you check your phone, this is what neuroscientists would say, your Twitter feed, a text message, or whatever, it takes on average 23 minutes to regain your focus. So if you're being interrupted and checking your phone every four or five minutes and it takes 23 minutes to gain your focus, you got problems. So how are you and I, how are we allowing this weapon of mass distraction impact our lives? That's where we have to be guardians. Do you turn your phone off on a regular basis or do you take it with you everywhere you go? A good diagnostic tool. Do you suffer from phone anxiety? Phone anxiety is like you're in the store and you're like, oh crap, my phone's in the car. How am I going to live? Right? We all have that. And in having that, we realize that maybe we are too wired to this device. As guardian of your heart, is that device, is it your servant or your master? It's a great servant. It is not a good master. Growing in self-control alone 
is exhausting because our willpower only lasts so long and then we all give in. And then we feel guilty or we feel shame when we do. But wouldn't it be great if we had a power greater than ourselves that was with us all the time that understood exactly what we're going through, our struggles, our temptations, and our failures when we blow it? Wouldn't that be great? And the good news is, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, you do. That's the role God plays. Love this passage in 1 Corinthians. It says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. In other words, we're all in this together. Our struggles, our failures with self-control. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation, he will provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. As Jesus was winding down his time on earth, he sat down with his disciples and he said, hey boys, I'm leaving. And it's good for you guys that I'm leaving. And they're thinking, wait, I thought you were going to set up your kingdom here. You've been with us for three years. We've learned a lot. And Jesus is like, I'm going to give you something better than me. It's this thing called the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, it says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Counselor, the Greek word there is parakletos, advocate, one who pleads or argues for our cause. Another translation is intercessor, someone who intercedes. They act on behalf of someone who is in trouble, which is all of us. And I love the other descriptor there, comforter. The Holy Spirit is going to comfort us, intercede, and advocate for us. And as the Holy Spirit is allowed to do that work in our life, we experience this fruit. And we see the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life through Paul's letter to Timothy. It's a thread throughout the book of 2 Timothy. And starting in the very first chapter, one of the very first verses, Paul says this. He's talking directly to Timothy. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Paul is telling Timothy a really important lesson here. You need to rekindle the Holy Spirit in your life. That can be translated to reactivate, to keep ablaze. See, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not like some superpower we get zapped with and it just steady state for the rest of our life. No. It's a relationship that grows or can weaken. You think of your other relationships. You spend more time, you activate, you kindle that, it's going to grow. You neglect it, it weakens. And I love that verse, the way he uses the word to rekindle, to keep ablaze. Think about a campfire. Maybe tonight, 4th of July week, and you just say, hey, I'm going to go out camping. So you got, you got your tent set up, you got your sleeping bag out there, and you make a little campfire. It's a beautiful evening. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to sleep under the stars. I got this fire going. This is great. Maybe you make some s'mores, and it's about 11, 12, and then the next thing you know, you're like, yeah, it's time for bed. So you fall asleep, and you wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're shivering in your sleeping bag because the fire has gone what? 
It's dwindled way down. And you're like, oh man, I don't want to get out of the sleeping bag. You got three choices. Stay in the sleeping bag and be cold the rest of the night. Would not recommend that. Get out of the sleeping bag, schlep over to your tent, get back in your sleeping bag, or you can stoke that fire. Get up, throw some more wood on, pump that baby, and next thing you know, you probably got enough fire to make it to morning. Takes a little bit of work. That's what Paul's talking about here. Rekindle, reactivate the spirit within us. The person of the Holy Spirit responds to us relationally. Paul writes elsewhere, he says in 1 Thessalonians, don't stifle the spirit, which could also be translated quench as fire. Ephesians 4 says, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. There's an emotional aspect of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We grieve the spirit when we fail in our role as guardians to allow sin to perpetuate again and again. We're all going to sin and God knows that. But when we make choices to neglect and not have the self-control and allow sin to perpetuate in our lives, we grieve the Spirit. So how do we rekindle that? Now, Paul goes through this whole litany of things throughout the the uh, second uh, Timothy there. I'm just going to hit on a few. In the very first chapter, verse 13, he says this, Hold to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me. In the faith, love that are in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit. There's a persistency of us working with the word of God and following it in our life. In the second chapter, he writes, share in suffering as a good soldier. Oftentimes, we view suffering as something to avoid. It's unavoidable. And when we lean into that suffering in our life, what's one of the things the Holy Spirit does? It comforts us. And when we experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's growing and flourishing more in our life. Chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We have new life in Christ. We cannot forget who we are as Christ followers. And when we were reminded of that beautiful truth of our new creation, our newness, our forgiveness, our freedom, we're rekindling the spirit in our hearts. In verse 16, it says, Avoid irreverent and empty speech. If Paul was writing this today, he'd probably say, yeah, watch how much time you're spending on social media. In the 22nd verse, he says, flee from youthful passions. You know, sometimes self-control is just get away. Get off the mobile device. Get out of the screen. Get out of that situation that you're like trying to exercise willpower. And you're like, I don't think I can do this. Flee. And then lastly, in the third chapter, Paul writes this. People will be lovers of self, boastful, proud, demeaning, slanders, without self-control, without love. Avoid these people. Sometimes self-control is just guarding the people you hang around with. You hang around with enough toxic people. It's going to be hard to have self-control. Remember that passage I looked at a few minutes ago in 2 Timothy, uh, the first chapter, where he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what? A spirit of power, of love, and sound judgment. Another translation for sound judgment is self-discipline or self-control. The Holy Spirit itself gives us the power we need to address these desires that are constantly we're bumping into. And earlier in Galatians 5, Paul writes this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There's an aspect of submitting to the spirit and allowing the spirit to lead us. And oftentimes our posture and attitude can be one of pride to say, I want to be in control. I want to have the reins. And God is saying, if you yield and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, your life's going to be so much better. Let's look at the last role. The role of others living in community. You know, one of Riv's core values here is in and in the community. We're not meant to be alone and we need other people to fully live out our calling. And too much of how we approach self-control in much of our Christian life is half-brained. Now, what do I mean by that? It's easy to think, you know, if I just read the Bible, if I listen to teachings and podcasts, maybe read some good books, pray, I'll have more self-control. Or I'll have more of these other things of the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If I do all that, I'm good to go. These are really good things, but they don't work in isolation. They don't completely allow you and I to obtain, sustain, and grow in self-control. I come from a background in healthcare, so allow me to do a one-minute lecture on neuroanatomy. The way our brains are wired, on the left side of our brain is where we do our logical thinking, our problem-solving, our strategies, cause and effects. It's where we form arguments and defend truth. That's the left side. The right side of our brain is emotional development, creativity, individual and group identity, relational attachments, and character formation. This is where our character is formed, including, yes, self-control. Remember when Jesus said we are to love God with what? All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind, and our neighbors with our whole self. We have to engage both sides of our brains to love wholly, to love fully. And we do that in community with the word of God fueled by the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what does this look like practically? Okay, I'm I'm getting this mark. I got to activate both sides of my brain. I know I need others. I need need the Holy Spirit in my life. What, What does that look like? Well, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now think of those four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. All of them involve another person directly and personally leaning in and speaking into our life in such a way that we are changed. Paul says, in order that we may be complete, so that we would be equipped for every good work. So let's take a minute to unpack all four of those things. Teaching. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. We do this pretty good here in the West. And here at Riv, you can hear some great teaching. You can rewatch sermons, all kinds of podcasts. You can listen while you drive to some of the best teachers all over the country. We have more access to great biblical teachers than any other time in the history of the world. So the teaching part is the easy part. The next one, not so much fun. Rebuking. 
To rebuke is to reprimand or strongly warn. Proverbs 27 says this, better an open reprimand than concealed love. You want to grow in self-control? You want the Holy Spirit to be working in your life more? Here's what you do. Self-control becomes real when we are open and vulnerable to input from others, including people rebuking you. And so the question to ask yourself, do I have safe, loving relationships with people I trust who can lovingly come alongside me at times and say, hey, Mark, I use me as a personal example. I noticed the other day when you were talking to Susie Q, you were really harsh in your words. And I've seen this pattern of harshness with how you interact with people. As a follower of Christ, we're called to live differently. Is that how you want to interact? And if this is a person I, I, I know and trust, I'm like, um, probably not. And I have been rebuked many times in my life. And in the moment, it's never fun. It's not something I look forward to. But over the course of my life, I have grown and I have matured as people have leaned in in a loving, caring way and reprimanded my behavior, my conduct, my speech. That's what we're talking about here. Correcting. Correcting is a little easier than rebuking. Correcting is something in our life's not right, and it's brought to our attention. Maybe we're straying in our thoughts or our attitudes or our words or some relationships there. I like to refer to those as blind spots. We all have them right? And they're called blind spots because we can't see them. And can we fix our own blind spots? No. That's why they're called blind spots. So if we're going to grow, we need to have other people leaning into our life and identifying these blind spots. This is a lot of research in this area around self-awareness. Here's the thing about our blind spots. Most people think they have fewer blind spots than they do, And most people think they are more self-aware than they actually are. There's a lot of research in the organizational theory space around self-awareness. And a lot of companies uh, go out and they do all kinds of different surveys. And typically what they find is they'll sit down and they'll go into an organization. They'll do do these 360-degree surveys of people. And they'll have someone who's being surveyed. And they'll do a self-evaluation. And that evaluation will show that most people think that they are self-aware about 85 to 90% of the time in terms of how they treat others, how patient they are, are they a good listener, do they handle conflict, all kinds of different criteria. Then they go and survey the people that work with this person and they ask them the same questions to say, how's this person doing with conflict and communication and being patient? person that fills it out on themselves, 90%. What do you think the group of people that this person's interacting rates them at? 60%, not even close. 10 to 15% on average. That is a quantum gap in terms of how people perceive themselves and their reality. And that is all of us. You want to grow in terms of maturing? You want to grow in self-control? Here's what you do. Go out with a cup of coffee with a friend of yours that you know and trust and ask him this question. What's one thing I could grow in in my life? But you're basically giving that person to, to lean in and speak into a blind spot into your life. 
You're opening yourself up and humbly submitting yourself to somebody else for correction. Proverbs 12 says this, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but one who hates correction is stupid. I love that. You know, it's kind of like, you don't like correction? You're a moron. You're an idiot. I mean, it's very strong language. Correction helps us. And here's the thing about correction. We talk about how we have the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of sound judgment. It's not only sound judgment for me. If I am living in fellowship and community with others, these people around me, they have the spirit in their lives to exercise judge, sound judgment for me, for my benefit, and I can do the same for them. And I often wonder how many personal tragedies could be avoided if there was someone who along the way would re rebuke or correct that person before they went so far off the path that their life became a train wreck. And one of the things we, we, we do this here at RIV with our uh, pastor team. Every year we do 360 degree surveys. We have all of our staff all that are elders. They fill it out. Then we have anywhere from five to seven people that they work and serve with do the same survey. They don't know which people uh, filled it out. And then we have a, another pastor look at that to see, do we have significant gaps? Because pastor's not immune to poor self-awareness and blind spots. And we see that as a, something that's really helpful for our leadership team. Well, let's look at the last thing, and then we're gonna wrap up here. Training. We've looked at teaching, we looked at rebuking, we looked at correcting. We all understand the concept of training, right? You wanna run a marathon, you gotta train. You wanna make it through college, you gotta work really hard. The Greek word for training is Padia, I'm pronouncing it wrong probably, but it means nurture and disciplinary instruction. It's almost a paradox when you think about that. Two examples of training that are on both sides of this. One, I think and hope every one of you have done, and the other one, probably not as many. The first example, potty training. I will not ask for a raise of hands who's completed potty training. We call it potty training. We don't call it potty teaching. You don't go to a one-year-old and say, hey, read this book on how to pee into that little thing over there. They can't read. Oh, I'll get my iPad and show them a YouTube video on how to pee. No. We lovingly nurture this little being to learn how to pee into the toilet. And we do it with love and care and a little bit of instruction Sometime a little bit of correction, sometime a little bit of affirmation. And when we do that on a consistent basis, lo and behold, they learn how to no longer use a diaper and use this thing called a toilet. It's a beautiful thing. The other extreme, military training. We have a few people in this room that have probably served in our military. Military, military training, for those of you who have gone through it, is not like potty training. And I've never met anyone in the armed service who would describe military training as nurturing. So I looked up the definition according to the Institute for Defense Analysis from our federal government, and they define military training as this. And I had to shorten it because it was two pages. A process to establish and improve individual and team capabilities to enter into harm's way and perform extremely demanding tasks at the highest level of proficiency. That's a mouthful. But think about that. You're a soldier in training. They don't hand you a manual on how to clean your gun, how to march, how to fight, how to take on a hill in an enemy position. 
They do drills together as a team. Everything they do, they are learning in community. So when they are under stress, when the bullets are flying, they are well-equipped to know exactly what they need to do. So why in the world, in our individualistic Western culture, do we think we can do our spiritual training in isolation? Think of that definition for military training. It parallels the Christian life, right? We are called to improve our individual and team capabilities as believers. We are called to grow together, stumble together to love and live like Jesus. That is our calling, together, to enter into harm's way. We are in spiritual conflict. We are in a spiritual battle. We have opposition against us. If we are to be a light to a dark world, it is going to be difficult. It is going to be challenging. And we are going to be asked to perform extremely demanding tasks. If we are to live a life that's different than this world, that reflects the love of Jesus Christ to a broken world, that is going to be challenging. And we do it with excellence for the glory of God. We do it together. And so in close, I just want to summarize, the fruit of the Spirit is harvested as we embrace our responsibility as guardians of our heart. We yield and allow the Spirit to work in our lives as we read and learn in God's Word and respond to it obediently. And we dive into community. We allow others to know us well to help us deal with our blind spots, to help us learn how to walk in the gospel, to be reminded of the freedom and forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And I want to close with a quick pitch. We, earlier this spring, we announced that going into this fall, we we're going to be launching what we call RIV Communities. These are going to be our community gathering spaces where we can do exactly what I've been talking about, where we can get together in groups of 20 or 30 people and really have a space that hopefully is safe and vulnerable where God's word becomes more real in our life so that together we can love and live more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word, that your word is at work in our lives. Thank you that you've given us your spirit. Your Holy Spirit dwells in us. That is an amazing thing. Doesn't matter what we do, where we go, you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. You are our comforter, our intercessor, our advocate. And I just ask, Lord, that you would give us, through your spirit, courage to live a life that's vulnerable, a life that's really in community with others so that we can grow and be more and more like you. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.